So we're in Galatians, specifically from Galatians 11 to 24 this morning, if you want to ready yourself with your Bible. And what we learned last week, if I can give you a little bit of a recap, was that this is a fist fight. That's what this is all about. It's Paul fighting for the gospel in Galatia. Specifically for the gospel that he outlines in Galatians 1, 3 to 5. If you just click on to this one, click again. I've given Neil a nightmare task because I've put lots of these fancy little animations in that I'm real proud of. But I'm going to be turning to him saying, please click, please click, please click. Don't click right now though. (laughs) And in Galatians 1, 3 to 5, he just outlines the beautiful gospel for which his whole life is serving. When he does his introduction, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul preached and lived for the gospel of Christ. Christ and nothing more. Christ's rescue, Christ's forgiveness, Christ's salvation that sets us free as a free gift, all designed and orchestrated by the living God himself. And this alone, yet here in Galatia, there were some people, they were Judaizers, is what we call them. Christian converts who wanted to add to this gospel by telling the Gentile converts, those that didn't come from a Jewish background originally, that after salvation and clearly receiving the message of Jesus, they needed to take on the foundational beliefs of the Jewish covenant if they wanted to truly be God's favoured people. And this belief was winning round different people in Galatia. It was taking ground in Galatia. People were starting to say, yeah, okay, that that must be right. We must have to add to Jesus. But as Chrissy B so helpfully put it, where these individuals wanted to add something to the simple gospel of faith and grace that Paul had faithfully preached to them when he had planted these churches, what they were really doing was subtracting They were taking something from the grace of Christ and his sufficiency by saying, you need something more than Christ. Christ isn't enough in your life. After you've accepted Christ, his forgiveness, his new life, his swapping of your sins for his perfect life, you need to do something more. You need to be added to the Jewish nation. You need to follow those rules that Moses laid down that that mean you're living right by God. That's what they wanted to add to it. You've got to come be a part of what was established before. And Paul's opening point in verses 1 to 10 that we learned about last week is that such a gospel is no gospel at all, but a distorted twisting of the true gospel, if you click on, that in fact crushes the effects of the true gospel. It crushes and would crush the fledgling church. Is that a bit graphic for you? Oh, it's just the beginning of my animations today. But that's it. Like, I actually did that deliberately because this is stark. This is serious. 
Paul has his stern face on here. He's not messing about. He's saying, don't distort my gospel. Don't touch it. Don't change it. Don't mess with it. Don't desert it. Hands off it. But with this shout, what we realise is that Paul hasn't even got out of his corner yet in the fight. He hasn't even warmed up. He's just having that shoulder massage in his corner, the whispering in his ears from, from his trainer God. Do you know, he's there, he's there. But this morning what we see is we see the first ding, ding, the bell goes, and we see Paul charge out of his corner and start his defence of the gospel. We see round one of his fight. And in verses 1 to 1, 11 to 24, this is his opening gambit in his fight for the gospel in Galatia. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles, the non-Jewish believers... I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, if you click on, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter that was, and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the region of Syria and Sicilia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it about my conversion and said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Do you know, there's only one way to describe um, what Paul's strategy is here. There's only only one way I can possibly think of to say uh, that with what Paul was doing here in this opening few verses of the fight, in this round one. And I think it can totally and utterly be summarised in this phrase alone. I am general butt naked. Is that what you'd read into it? Click it again. Yeah, that's right. I am general butt naked. He is definitely saying, I am general butt naked. I thought that would get more of a laugh. I said naked and butt in this. What on earth am I talking about? Is this a Greek translation that no other scholar in history has found yet? Has anybody, has anybody heard of general butt naked? Has that, has that phrase ever crossed anybody's minds or lips before? No. Okay, well, I've probably got some explaining to do then. Let me introduce you to General Buttnaked, if we can click on.
if you just click through a few things there. General Butt-Naked is actually Joshua Milton Balahi. In the 1990s, from 89 through to about 2003, uh, Libya had a civil war that was one of the most inhumane, horrible civil wars on the planet. They estimate around 250,000 people died in this civil war. And this man, this man was one of the most evil men on the battlefield. He was a priest of a local religion, and he was fighting for the president of the time as a spiritual leader. He was so, so zealous for his tradition. He would sacrifice children to the gods so that they would invoke spirits so that they would win. He ran an army of child soldiers, people of 8 to 11, feeding them, crushing up into their food cocaine so they did not know what they were doing, so that they were wired, so they would just do his bidding. Just click on a couple more, just, just some of those facts. And he was known, and this is where General Butt Naked comes from, he was known for going into warfare absolutely naked because he believed it protected him from bullets. There were some pictures. I thought it best not to illustrate that. He thinks that he killed, and his men killed, around 20,000 people during this war. One media article I read about this man said, I think he must be the most evil man alive. Hence the pictures. People have questioned whether he's the devil incarnate, this general. But in 1996, something happened to General Butt Naked that is inexplicably remarkable. Click on. The church leaders in Liberia had felt prompted to pray for this specific man of influence. And they fasted and they prayed for around 56 days. And in his own words, Joshua Milton Balahi said, I had just finished a sacrifice of a young girl that had felt all wrong. And in this moment, I had a vision of Jesus. And Jesus said to me, change your ways or you will die. Change your ways, essentially, or you're only going to one place. And from that moment, that encounter on, General Butt Naked has never gone to war. He has never killed anyone. In fact, they, his troops and his people thought a madness came over him in that moment, and he ran away to Ghana and stayed in a Ghanaian camp outside of Liberia. But since that time, he's gone back. And he's known as a man who tirelessly preaches the gospel to those people and those families that he has murdered people in, to child soldiers who are there, and to anybody who will listen about the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And he is causing the world an incredible headache. So in 2010... This man 
This man admitted everything he did to a Truth and Reconciliation Tribunal in The Hague who are looking at people for war, war crimes. Some of his contemporaries are currently being tried for war crimes, but they do not know what to do with this man. He was truly evil and had truly committed the most hideous atrocities that you can possibly imagine. Yet, now he is in this country and he is working for everything that they believe in. Restoration, reconciliation, goodness, truth. He's there. Since that moment, he's had numerous attempts on his life. And he has said, he has just put his hand at the authority and said, look, whatever you, whatever you do, whatever you decide is just, it's, it's just in this world. I've done it. I've done it. Now, the jury is somewhat out on this man. Do you know, he's still living his life. What, what will the, the ultimate fruit of his life be? You know, it, you know, to some extent, but something. What is, what is inescapable is in that moment, something happened that fundamentally transformed a man who had no mind for Christ, none whatsoever, into being an avid follower of Jesus, come what may. He was set free. General Butt Naked was set free. And you, you click on. And in one way, the passage today is incredibly simple that we're dealing with. All Paul is doing here is reminding his readers that his story is actually the same as general but naked's in so many respects. He's simply reminding people of the remarkable change that came about in him. So verse 14 tells us that he was a zealous priest and minister of a different religion to Christianity. And verse 13 says that he, too, was a persecutor and a murderer. Acts 8 gives us a little bit more detail to this, saying that he presided over the stoning of Stephen, the first man recorded to die in Christianity for his beliefs. Read over that. But he had watched this man be bludgeoned to death, stone by stone, by a mob. That's what this man, the man who's writing this letter right now, did with his life. Stone by stone, he had watched a man have his head crushed in. And not only had he not acted, which is often one of the most unjust things that we can do, he had endorsed it. He has presided over it. He had said, yes, this is righteous and right action. This is what should be going on. And in Acts 8, verse 3, we read the word, he ravaged the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women to put them in prison. One scholar writes, Saul of Tarsus, which is Paul's name before his conversion, was a bigot and a fanatic. Are there two worse words in our society at the moment? He's a bigot and a fanatic wholehearted in his devotion to Judaism and his persecution of Christ and the church. Paul here is reminding his readers that he was a man with no mind, no thought, no inkling of following Jesus. To him, Jesus was an abhorrent, distorted cult that was undermining the traditions of Judaism, which had been passed down from generation to generation. He saw it as a corrupt thing. They simply needed stopping. 
And he was the man trying to stop it, leading the charge. And Paul here was in fact one of the most devout Jews of his day in studying and proliferating the law of Moses. He studied in the Distinguished Centre for Learning in Tarsus. They call him Saul of Tarsus because he comes from the centre of Jewish learning. And he had been far more successful in it than most. Definitely more devote than the challenges to the gospel that he was now fighting had ever been. I mean, they were lightweights. That's what they didn't realise entering this battle. They were lightweights entering a heavyweight bout here. They'd come against somebody who knew his stuff. It was a, it was a bad matchup for them. He had risen up through the ranks of Judaism because of his skill and ability. Yet, in 33 AD, something remarkable happened to this Jew of Jews. Just as General But Naked has, this proliferator of a different worldview and a murderer became a follower of Christ. I want to read you a story from a children's Bible where a remarkable amount of my theology comes from. Can I say, if you don't understand the Bible, actually, or if you're just starting out and you want to get a better grasp of it, or you want to just serve your kids well, I've never found a better resource than this. My kids absolutely adore it. And me and Pete were talking the other day, and we're sad when we're out and not back in time, because you miss, you miss it, such as the quality of the storytelling uh, and the accuracy of the content of this, this book. It's creative, and it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it comes with DVDs and, it, um, and things to play in the car, but it's, but it's brilliant in introducing your children to the wonder of the Word of God or just having a good read yourself, because it covers all the main themes of the Bible. It's brilliant. And this summarises all the places in the Bible where we find out about Saul's story. So let me just read this to you. Of all the people who kept the rules, Saul was the best. I'm good at being good, he'd tell you. He was very proud and very good, but he wasn't very nice. Saul hated anyone who loved Jesus. He travelled around looking for them, He wanted to catch them and put them in prison. He wanted everyone to forget all about Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was the rescuer, and he didn't believe Jesus was alive either. You see, Saul had never met Jesus. So one day, Jesus met Saul. Saul was on his way to Damascus when suddenly a dazzling light flashed like lightning. It was brighter than the sun, it was too bright. Saul shielded his eyes and fell to the ground. He heard a loud voice. It was too loud. It gave Saul a headache. Saul, Saul, said the loud voice. Why are you fighting me? Lord, Saul answered. Who are you? I am Jesus, said the voice. When you hurt my friends, you are hurting me too. Saul's whole body trembled. Go to the city, Jesus said. I will tell you what to do. When Saul opened his eyes, he couldn't see. His helpers had to hold his hand and lead him like a little child. Saul was blind for three whole days, and yet it was as if he was seeing for the very first time. Meanwhile, there was a man called Ananias who loved Jesus. Jesus came to him in a dream. Go to Saul and pray for him, and I will make him see again. Ananias knew all about Saul and how he hated Jesus, his followers. Lord, he has come to hurt us, Ananias said. But Jesus told him, 
Saul is the one I've chosen to tell a whole world who I am. So Ananias went to Saul. Brother Saul, Ananias said, it was Jesus you met on the road. Ananias prays for Saul. Suddenly Saul could see again, but he saw everything differently. He wasn't mean anymore. He even changed his name from Saul to Paul, which means small and humble. The very opposite of proud. And do you know what Ananias' name means? The Lord is full of grace. Grace is just another word for gift, which is funny because that's what, just what Paul's message was all about from then on. This free gift. And as we see in Acts 9 and at the end, this, this change just totally confounded people. Totally confounded people. Hold on a minute. You're the one who was trying to kill us. Now you're, now you're loving Jesus. You're preaching Jesus. You were trying to kill us. What on earth has gone on there? If you click on. Sorry, I'm going to this whole passage and first round strategy for his fight is built around Paul's life testimony we've heard a testimony this morning haven't we Paul has just given his story he's just telling them how it is who he was and who he is now and how that came about he was laying out for his readers that he'd been saved from the very rock of burden that these Judaizers were trying now to put on believers in fact he had been the very best at carrying this burden, that these practices had not brought him any freedom. That had come through Jesus Christ alone, through his grace and mercy. It was the gospel that caused the dramatic change in his being and his purpose. Nothing needed to be added to it. It was simply meeting Christ Jesus. Why should the gospel not be added to, not be changed, not be distorted? Because Paul is the genuine, general, but naked. You happy with that phrase now? I told you, I am general, but naked. One whose life was going in one direction, with no sense or desire for Christ in it, then was radically changed once and for all, simply by the work of of Christ. This is the framework of Paul's argument. Remember me? Remember the astonishing change that came about in my life? How it caused fear and confusion? This was the gospel I have already outlined. It needs nothing else. However, in this overarching testimony, there are two deeper hearty blows to his readers and opponents. He levels a meaty left hook in there and a dizzying right-hander that we have to take note of to get all the riches out of this passage. I just want to look at these for a moment. The meaty left, if you want to just click. Within the text, we encounter a number of comments where he's keen to distance himself from Jerusalem. 
So we read things like, I did not immediately consult with anything, anybody, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And he says, only after three years did he go to visit Peter, and only for 15 days. And even then he saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. He is so strong about this that he sort of testifies it with, a, with, a, with an extra remark. In what time I'm saying to you, before God, I don't lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown into the persons of Judea. He's distancing himself from some Jerusalem and Judea, and he's making two points here for his readers. One, his shaping and understanding of the gospel has formed outside and away from the shaping in Jerusalem and the foundations that the apostles were laying there. Secondly, that his understanding of the gospel and mission had been formed entirely in another physical location, to that physical location of Jerusalem. He lists a number of Gentile locations, so locations that were outside of those seen to be full of um, the people of God and part of the plans and purposes of God. These are ends of the earth locations beyond Jerusalem and Samaria. So he names Damascus, doesn't he? Syria, all of these were geographically north. Um, And Sicilia, which was even further. That's where he initially came from. But these were the places to go. Why? Why does he do this? Doesn't that seem strange to you? Surely his message and authority is greater through association with those men who walk with Jesus, those apostles. Is he not actually undermining himself with this argument? Name dropping, you know, is one of the ways we like to accumulate authority for ourselves, isn't it? So, um, so we're all going away next weekend, you know. We're going to go hang out with Jeremy Simpkins. He's going to input into us. And we're going to be more holy because of it. Do you know what I mean? That Jeremy's a great guy and we're going to be fed and hopefully envision for the church that weekend, and I believe we will be because of, of uh, who he is and what he carries in the spirit. But actually, we'd like to use it for that way, don't we? Association means authority. And Paul's doing the exact opposite here with his argument. He's distancing himself. And some have said that the aim of this declaration is a declaration of independence, sort of a, you know, almost like a stern declaration of independence, almost as if Paul was proudly fighting for equal yet separate status with the church in Jerusalem. Do you know? But, but there's something that doesn't fit for me with the heart of, of Paul there in what I read here. Like, clearly... In Paul's life, he had to fight for acceptance of the legitimacy of his conversion and ministry. I think we see that clearly, which took time amongst believers. Um, Chris is going to pick up on the next preach in two weeks' time when the, the, the jump forward is 14 years before he's seemingly accepted. But actually, well, the picture we see of Paul in Galatians is one who respects deeply the place of Peter and the other apostles. And we see in this passage here that he did go to speak to Peter and he did go and get, try and get time with them, even though that was, was brief. He was clean to mention, no, I did, I did get that time. And actually more tellingly in 2 verse 2, which we'll cover a little bit next week in passing, he, he goes later on to gain clarification from these very men that he was not running the race in vain. He wanted their input. He wanted their time. He recognised their authority and place. And actually, his wasn't a separate. It was something that was intertwined with that, but he was trying and battling for his place in that. And I think simply what is going on here is just, again, using the medium of his own story, using his story to 
to, uh, to speak about his life, he is rebuffing the twisting of the gospel that was taking place by Jewish Christians. That's his simple aim. Paul is simply saying, look here, I am a living reality that God's purpose are no longer just centered around the physical nation of the Jews and the practice of explicitly Jewish culture. My life has not only started apart from the the Jewish legal framework you want to reimpose, my ministry, my authority, my understanding has seen such deep growth independently from it, but with an authenticity and power that has been recognized by those who are in Jerusalem and from that core heritage. Why was it so important that he made this testimonial statement here? Why, Why was it that he did this? Well, one commentator has said, oh, you're already there. No, it's great. It's brilliant. One commentator has said that one way of seeing the corruption of the gospel that are, is that the Judaizers were actually trying to draw people back into a nationalistic religious system that continued to center entirely around Jerusalem, Jerusalem's culture, Jerusalem's leader's authority. In effect, they were trying to fit people back into a renewed form of the structures of Israel and saying that after conversion, you had to be a part of these to truly be accepted and set apart for God. In other words, rather than allowing the gospel and the coming of Christ and its his implications to reform their mindsets and understanding of the world, they tried simply to fit Christ into their former understanding of being a part of a community set apart by adherence to law and rules and culture. And what Paul is doing here is reminding and drawing people's attention back to the fact that for the Judaizers to do this actually limits the reality of the gospel and what it came to accomplish, what Christ came to accomplish. That the gospel of Christ did not originate in Jerusalem, but started in the region of Galilee, of the Gentiles, as prophesied 500 years before in Isaiah 9.1. It's a dramatic statement that God's blessing is no longer confined by national, ethnic, or cultural boundaries. None of these have superior status, not even Jerusalem, because the gospel is poured out for all to transform all. The gospel was always meant to reach out beyond all nationalistic physical boundaries and the structures of Judaism, to transform those from every nation and tribe and tongue, every culture, Every level and layer of Liverpool, it's not for one, it's not just for the intellect, it's not for the really super religious people who've always grown up there. The gospel is for everyone. Every facet of this city, Jesus longs to pour the gospel into. Every facet. And Paul was showing through his life and testimony that he was a living demonstration of how the life and freedom of God in Christ had and was flourishing outside and beyond nationalistic borders and structures under the sovereign Christ Jesus. So simply by drawing the attention of readers to the independence of his life, he is saying to his opponents, get your hands 
off my broad and beautiful world-changing gospel. Get your hands off it. And to the Christians affected by this teaching, he was saying, don't narrow and constrain the gospel to being part of or confined to a nationalistic framework. It bursts forth beyond cultures and is a world-changing tool. I've got a question for you. What limits do we place on the power of the gospel because of the cultures we come from? I was trying to think about this for me. My big one is that it's not that it can't change other cultures. I've got a lot of faith for that, actually. But my expectation for it changing ours sometimes is more shaped from my life before Christianity than it is what I read about the gospel in the Bible and the effects it's had on my own life. Which is that, what is its relevance and power in my culture? In this culture, where it we come from a place which says the gospel's dying, it's dead, it's ineffectual, it has no place. And sometimes, sometimes, I don't know if you're the same, but this can seep into my heart and can make me think that the gospel is not the powerful tool that the Lord established it to be. As a similar mistake to what we're seeing in these Judaizers thinking, so that's the left-hander. Get off my gospel. And for fi- fi- uh, to finish, he lays a dizzying right-hander on them. Again, in a scene that runs throughout the text, we pull- see Paul make statements such as, this is not man's gospel, but is given by a revelation. He who set me apart by his grace. It's he who set me apart by his grace and revealed his son. Paul, throughout this passage, points to the fact that the gospel he has preached is not just another philosophy thought up by man. It's not taught or given as a good way of living that makes sense, so we go, yeah, let's get on board with that, that sounds good. It's not the current uh, trend or zeitgeist, just to use a fancy word so I look good. It's not open to altering and changing, addition or subtraction, but is God's revelation of himself. His grace, his goodness, his nature, his son, and his power. Revelation is a word worth thinking about the meaning of. Sometimes I think we can super-spiritualize and hype it up as some sort of thing in church life. And I I sometimes feel like whenever I say the word revelation, I have to say it in a uh, deep, passionate American accent. I have a revelation! But it's actually not an aggressive word like that at all. It's a very gentle word, revelation is. It means to uncover or reveal something of yourself, just to show something of yourself that was not formally known, had formally been hidden. So how do you know me? How do you know what I think about this passage this morning? I am using my words, my actions, my tone, my life to take something that was formally hidden inside of me, and PowerPoint, and reveal it to you. Then you know, we had a great evening with uh, the Gillards. And uh, we grilled them, and we got grilled in return with questions. But it was great, because it just it gave the opportunity for one another to, to reveal. And I would really say that their story is, is wonderful and faith-building, and have them round for dinner. So make them your first port of call for, sorry, everybody else, just for, just for breakfast. 
next week. Get them. Go get them if you've not met them before. Uh, wonderful. Wonderful. And we were revealing something of ourselves. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God unveils and uncovers the deepest parts of his very person. That he is the God who so loved the world, he robed himself in humanity as a baby and lived a perfect life and incurred a costly death in our place to leave broken man restored to himself, completely forgiven of all of the effects of our abandonment of his way of living and sin as an absolutely, completely free gift of grace. Once and for all, received simply by faith and belief and the Holy Spirit's new life. And he now pursues humanity through his church in the gospel relentlessly in face of constant rejection. That is the God who is unveiled at the gospel. The gospel is where all of the merciful wisdom humble, enduring, sacrificed, and power of God is encountered in Christ's word, deed, and resurrected position. This is where, by the power of the Spirit, through the perfect God, priest, king, servant, mediator, Jesus, we re-enter into heaven's embrace and find the gateway back to our creator. And this through the centuries has resulted in stories like General Butt Naked and Paul and Karen and me and everybody who professes to believe in Christ in this room. Where we meet Jesus in the gospel and we say, Whoa, I am a man of unclean lips because I have met something of the majesty of the King of Kings in the gospel in Christ's action, in his word, and in his steed. And essentially, throughout this whole passage, Paul is saying, don't tamper with the gospel, because it has never been mine at all. It has always been God's. His initiative, and the way he shows mankind exactly who he is, in a sea of other philosophies, beliefs, teachings, and worldviews. This is his line. This is who I am. You want to know who I am? You want to know my nature? You want to know exactly what I think of you? Look at the gospel. I would give my all, my son, just to know you, just to be in relationship with you, just to be restored unto you. I would concoct a plan that spans the entirety of history just to embrace you and have you in my arms. Who is God? He's the God we encounter in Jesus Christ. So Paul starts the fight here against the Galatians, this heavyweight boxer, with three cool things. They're all designed to say, get your flipping hands off my gospel. You're ruining it. One, he is a living example of the true gospel's power to transform from death to life. That his... Conversion was one from being 
One who excelled at the covenant of the Judaizers were now preaching to one who had been added to Christ. That the true gospel was always intended to breach Jewish culture's structures and boundaries and transform every culture for all time, not conform to one superior culture. And that this gospel, most of all, was God's gospel. If you can just click two through to the... One more. It's a picture of a gun. I've only ever held a gun twice in my life. Both times it's been clay pigeon shooting. I wasn't very good. But I also, when I held that gun in my hand, I remember feeling a a deep trepidation to the power of the thing that I was holding before me. This, in my hand, somebody had put in me the, the power of life and death. I was there with my buddies having a laugh, you know, being all macho and... Yeah, I'm going to shoot more than you. But inside, there was an awe and a fear that I was holding this gun. John, from his upbringing, is thinking, Matt, you pansy, we use guns all the time. <laughs> like, John comes from a farm. Have him around for dinner. He's got some great stories as well. Breakfast, even. Breakfast. No. Yeah. Great stories, but they're reckless, John. They're reckless <laughs> stories. Get to your point, Matt. And inside I was, I, was just, I was just afraid because this thing was so very powerful that I was holding it in my hands. And I wonder if you hold guns too much, I wonder if you do lose, John, maybe you can tell me, I wonder if you do lose that, uh, <laughs> maybe you have to be some sort of gun toter, I wonder if you lose that, that realisation of what you're holding in your hands. I'm sure a good gunner never loses that. I'm sure he always realises and is careful with his gun and his weapon what it is he is holding and what, what it is he's been given to steward in that time. But I think a reckless gunner, I think the problem is they, they forget what that can do. So, you know, a, a reckless gunner like a mum in a supermarket who puts a loaded gun in her handbag with her two-year-old there, she's forgotten something about the seriousness of the thing that that has, that she has in her hand. She's become desensitised to it. And I wonder, in all the calls for the gospel and all of the, the, the truth that we've heard about the gospel over our lives, we are fat on truth, aren't we, in the, in the UK? It's wonderful. If something has happened to us where, where actually we forget the power of the thing that the Lord has given us to steward, to keep, to speak to people, to talk about, that it is this world-changing, life-changing person-altering message that draws people back into the hands of God and causes a revelation of the living God where they have not formally had it as we communicate it. God has given us the most powerful loaded gun. He's a bit reckless like John, I think. He puts it in the hands of us and says, here you go, I want to do it with you, through you. I want you to communicate Christ now. You, the body. And I think if this does anything, this passage does anything and should stir us in anything, those who are Christians here, it should remind us of the power of the gospel. And as we start out in church, 
it should once again cause us to within trepidation and trembling and a sense of awe and magnificence hold the gospel as the treasure. You see at the centre of our centre of our vision and values lies the cross. And this is why. Symbolises the gospel and the work of Christ in its entirety and the life that then flows out of that. It is the hub of everything. It's the USP of our our life and mission and passion. The gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel also comes with an open invite always for all time, no matter what background you've come from and no matter what you have done if you do not know Christ here this morning. That's its nature. If you've slipped away from Christ, it is enough just to draw you back as you see Christ again. Repentance. Retake a penthouse view. Retake, restand on the depth of truth that you have been one, that Christ alone has made you righteous and brought you back into relationship with God and there's nothing else that you need. Stand again this morning on the power and the authority of the gospel. But know that if you've never, you've never responded to the gospel this morning, that Christ's arms are always like this. Once and for all on that cross. What is that? It's wide open. It's a death that embraces everyone for all time. And the only thing, the only thing you need to do is say, yes, Lord, I choose to have faith in you. As he stirs your heart and prompts you and you respond to it, just as Paul did. Just as butt naked did. Just as I did. Yeah. Jack, will you pray for us?